So we have been in a series called Tough as Nails, and really we've been talking about fear and how followers of Jesus have the ability, even though there is fear and there will always be fear, to live fearless lives. And one of our uh, leaders had a suggestion this morning that uh, a great illustration of fear uh, would be to do this. Um, I'm going to ask for a volunteer. Anybody want to volunteer this morning? I see some some little hands. Here's what I'm asking you to volunteer for. I'm going to ask you to come up and preach my message. You got my notes here and my notes on the screen in the back, and and you can come up and and you can teach the message. Anybody want to take a shot at doing that? You you know the the age, I've got one in the back. It's all yours, Hallie. Uh, Um, there's this, the, it's like, if you like Jerry Seinfeld, I love Jerry Seinfeld and he has this age old skit that, uh, he talks about a funeral that, that more people at a funeral would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy, right? The greatest thing in the world we fear is public speaking. Um, fear, if we're not careful, can, can grip and control and even dominate and run our lives. It can cause us to do things we don't want to do, to be people we don't want to become, And when we look back over the centuries, really to to the first century group of Christians that kind of started this work, they they lived in a moment of incredible fear, of incredible persecution. Yet yet the the thing that kind of characterized them and represented them was their fearlessness and their boldness. How? How did they live that way? Do you know once upon a time there were no Democrats once upon a time, there were no Republicans. Once upon a time, there was, there was no Bill of Rights. There was no First Amendment rights. Once upon a time, there was no Second Amendment rights. Once upon a time, there was no religious rights as we kind of perceive our religious freedoms and rights. Once upon a time, there was just Rome, the empire. Once upon a time, there was the leader of this empire, and he was the dominant leader, Julius Caesar. This emperor Caesar, rather, he... He was total control, total dominant. Yet what's interesting is that once upon a time in in this this empire of Rome, in this this small area called Judea, in the small town of Bethlehem, a boy was born. And this baby boy would eventually grow up and his story would eclipse the story of the first Roman emperor. As a matter of fact, as this boy grew up and became a man, his story would eclipse the story of every Roman emperor who ever lived in the Roman Empire. That these emperors, that, that this, this incredible empire that marked history would only become a footnote in the story of this little boy who grew up into a man and became our Savior, Jesus. Once upon a time, the world looked very different than it did now. This little boy who grew up into a man, he, he was later uh, <clears throat> betrayed by a friend. He, he was actually condemned by the temple, and he was crucified by the empire. What's amazing is even today, he's worshipped throughout the entire world. Once upon a time, Christianity was very different than it did now. The small group of Christians that followed this man, they would gather on the first day of the week and, and they would gather early in the morning and they would sing a hymn to Christ and they would share a story or, or perhaps read from a letter or read from a document that had been passed around by one of the other followers of, of, of this man, Jesus. And, and, and they, would, they would kind of renew their covenant with each other. They would, they would renew uh, um, their, their commitment to be men and women above reproach who lived with integrity, who, who promised uh, to behave in an honest way and to not take advantage of people, to, to be people uh, above reproach in every area of their lives. They would gather and they they would commit these things. 
And in these gatherings, in these, these courtyards and in the lawns and under trees, th- these small groups of people that would contain masters and slaves and men and women and children and Jews and Gentiles and, and even Romans and soldiers. This little pocket of people. They would gather. And they believed some really strange things. They believed that God wasn't, wasn't stone, that God was spirit, and, and that God had a plan, and his plan was beginning to work, even in the face of persecution and this incredible fear. They believed that every single person they'd come eyeball to eyeball with, every single person had intrinsic value, not assigned value, but intrinsic value. One thing that set them apart from every, every other culture in the world is they believed that the time for animal sacrifice had kind of come and gone. And this small group of believers, they too were betrayed by friends. They were condemned by the temple. They were persecuted by the empire. Yet their influence, it spread like an airborne disease. And now it's our turn. And someday, one day, our story will be told. Our our influence will in the world, our mark of Christianity as American Christians living in the 21st century, someday it'll be told. I wonder, what will our story be? What will our story be? Because we know this, we've talked about this before, we don't go to church, we are the church. And we are the stewards of our faith to our generation and to the next generation. We set the pace for those people, for the children, for all of those Christians who would come after us. What's our story going to be? Today we conclude this series, Tough as Nails. I want to talk to you about a narrative uh, in in a a very famous book. It's uh, kind of a a book that kind of describes what happens after the life and the death and and, and the resurrection and even the ascension of Jesus. We're going to look at at the book of Acts. If you're following along with us, it's Acts chapter 4. But what I find amazing about this challenging piece of narrative, and really it challenges me and my hope is as we read through it, that that it would even challenge you, is that it it describes a version of Christianity that that is is so uh, almost hard for us to see in this day and age. It's it's something that that if we really want to examine, it's almost like like a version of Christianity that we've lost. It's a version of Christianity that was awe-inspiring. It's a version of Christianity that that caused people to kind of stop and stare and wonder, who are these people? I I mean, some of the things they do, some of their customs are a little weird. I mean, if we're being honest, some of their customs are are even a little offensive. But but there's just something incredible about this group of people, about this this group of Christians. I may not agree with them, but man, I, I love having them around. It was a version of Christianity that caused people to stop and stare and wonder. What's so unique? What's so different about these people? This narrative in in the book of Acts, it takes place two months after the resurrection of Jesus. That's incredible. That's not two years. It's not 20 years or 120 years. Two months. Jesus died. He was crucified. He was buried. He was resurrected. Two months later, this encounter takes place. It's it's not a long period of time. And and what's amazing is... um, the man who investigated this, the, man, the author of, of the book of Acts, we've talked about him before. This is Luke. He wasn't an eyewitness to all of these events. Luke, he kind of interviewed everybody who was an eyewitness. He went out as a journalist and got all the details, interviewed everybody who was around and compiled all of his, his findings together in his gospel. We call it the gospel of Luke. Well, later he, he goes on a journey with a very famous uh, um, 
apostle, we know him as the Apostle Paul. And he begins to travel around with the Apostle Paul and he, he plants these churches all around the Mediterranean Rim. And Luke writes down his, his first person account of what's happening. Luke starts the story off before traveling around by, by talking about what happens with this small group of, of believers, this small group of Christians after Jesus died and was you know, crucified, buried, resurrected, and then left the earth. What, what begins to happen? What, what, what changes? Because something is beginning to change in their society, in their culture. I mean, some weird things happen, right? They, they, they put Jesus in the ground. Everybody watched him crucified. It was a very public display. And then we hear rumors that, that his body's not there in, in the grave anymore. And where did it go? And then there's, there's more rumors of these sightings of Jesus. And, and there's questions of who is this Jesus and what's happening and, and, and why is this going on? And, and, and there's all this kind of turmoil beginning to pop up. In Acts chapter 4, we, we get this incredible account of what begins to happen with two of Jesus' followers. And we know them. We've talked about them before. Peter, he's kind of the bold, the brash one, the, the type A. And John, the beloved Peter and John one day, they're kind of <clears throat> walking around. They, they had just seen Jesus ascend into heaven, and they're walking their way into the temple of Jerusalem to, to have a moment of prayer. And, and as they're walking in, they pass this, this lame guy, and you have to imagine what the temple looks like. This is like a 34-acre property with buildings everywhere and walls surrounding it, and there's steps leading up to it. So everybody kind of enters into the temple through the same way, or most people enter into the temple through this way. They, they walk past a, a man who's laying on the side of the temple stairs begging. This man's about 40 years old, which tells us that he's been there for a, a long time. <clears throat> people bring him out there during the day so we can beg, and then they bring him back at night. That many people who've lived in Jerusalem, who've walked by the temple, have seen this man and recognized this man and know this man. This day, he stops John and Peter. And he begs, give me some money, give me some gold, give me some silver. John and Peter have no gold and silver to give. They said, but here's what we can do for you. We can heal you. They pray in Jesus' name, and they, they pray over this man, and the strangest thing happens. He gets up, and he walks for the very first time in his life. He walks. I mean, imagine being 40 years old and have never been able to see or never hear or never walk, and then finally you can. I mean, there's this, this exuberation, this joy in you. He's healed, and he's walking around, and he's so excited. He's following Peter and John as they're making their way up the stairs into the temple, and as, as I'm sure as they're walking in, a crowd's beginning to gather because people are recognizing, I saw this guy. I, I've seen this guy for years. As a matter of fact, my parents and I used to walk by him on our way to the temple. We just passed him. Isn't that the guy? They're all beginning to recognize, that must be him. This, this guy that was lame, he was there for years, and now he's walking. What's going on? And a, a crowd begins to gather around John and Peter. And Peter, who remember Peter just a few months ago, is the guy who betrayed Jesus and, and, and cussed out a little girl. Like He was so scared. Now a crowd gathers in the temple, in the very place that represents the people who crucified his master. Peter begins to preach. <clears throat> he takes this opportunity. He speaks with, with boldness and he speaks with, with, with passion, and he's, he's talking about Jesus in the temple, the place that crucified him. And then he, he, he makes this incredible statement. He says, he says basically, you are responsible for his death. You murdered him. But God raised him. And the crowd gathers, and the, the temple guard begins to see this commotion, and they're, they're kind of upset at what's happening. So they come in to break it up, and they disperse the crowd, and there at the center of the crowd they find these two Jesus followers. And I'm sure in their heads they're thinking, I thought we dealt with this months ago. I, I thought we got rid of this Jesus months ago. So they, they arrest Peter and John and they bring them before the high council. And this, keep in mind, is the same council that is responsible for condemning Jesus to death. They bring him before the council and there, there's 
Ananus and Caiaphas, his, his son-in-law, and then there's his sons because they kind of kept this, this priestly leadership thing in the family and they would just keep switching turns of who is the high priest. And this, this high council, this high priest gathers Peter and John together in a room and they begin to, to, to basically make these accusations. Why are you here? Why are you doing this? I thought we dealt with this. Why do you keep talking about Jesus? We crucified him. He's dead. Let's move on. I thought this was over with. And Peter, once again, not the same guy he was just months before, looks at the accusers, looks at the very men who have their, his fate in their hands. And he begins to teach and preach Jesus one more time. Don't you, don't you men know Jesus? You should. You killed him. But God raised him from the dead. And then he makes this extraordinarily, extremely offensive statement. He says this. He says, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Looking at his accusers. You murdered him, the son of God, the Messiah, the one that all of us have been waiting for. But don't lose heart. God raised him from the dead. Oh, and, and by the way, he's the only way to salvation. There is salvation offered, but it's only him. I mean, how, how narrow, right? How, how closed-minded. Who are you to say he's the only way? I mean, it seems radical. And my guess is, if you're not a Christian, this is one of the things that bothers you. How could it be the only way? Maybe you were a Christian at some time, and this was the very reason you were a Christian at one point, because it, it just seems so narrow. How can they say he's the only way? It's so closed-minded. It, it, it's so, like, only us, and it cuts everyone else off. I, I don't understand. How can you make this statement? You see, but Peter believed. Peter, standing before his accusers, he believed something radical. He had spent time with Jesus. And Jesus, the Son of God, his Master, his Messiah, said he is the only way. Well, that just sounds too radical for me. So let me make this suggestion this morning. Maybe we cut Peter and John a little slack. I mean, seriously, think about it. <clears throat> They're really excited. Their best friend, their master, their teacher, he'd just been, they watched him beaten and arrest, arrested and beaten and crucified. They watched him pulled down from the cross and put in a grave. They went to the grave and he wasn't there. And then they had breakfast with him on the beach. I mean, they're just like beyond excited, right? And, and I mean, we've talked about this before. When a guy can say that he's going to die and come back to life and he does it, you just take whatever he says because nobody has ever done that but Jesus. And Jesus said he's the way. So Peter and John are thinking, well, he must be right. I mean, he said he was going to die, and he died, and he said he was going to come back to life, and he came back to life. We had breakfast with him. Surely he must be the only way. And they're facing his accusers, facing the very people who decide whether or not he lives or he dies with boldness, with, with this, this confidence. I mean, there was like no fear in this man anymore. He said, you killed him. But don't worry. God raised him because God had a plan, and salvation was his plan, and salvation is only offered to you by this man, Jesus. These people were dumbfounded. Who are these two guys? Who do you guys think you are? As a matter of fact, this was, was their reaction. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that these were just ordinary, just unschooled, just, just fishermen. Yet they were astonished. And they took note. 
that these men must have been with Jesus. And what does that mean? That they shared the same courage and the same boldness and the same fearlessness that Jesus did. That even in the face of imminent death, they wouldn't back down and they wouldn't shut up and you couldn't quiet them down. There was something uniquely different about these men. So they sent these men away. Give us a moment. Let us confer. You see, they had to because standing with these men, right? Standing with these men was the man that they had just healed. They brought this sick man in with them. But since, Luke goes on, but since they could see that the man who had been healed was standing there with them, they realized there was nothing they could say. How could they deny this? We know this man. He'd been at, at the entrance to the temple. We've seen him every day. There's nothing we could do. Yet these guys did something. Clearly, God must have done a miracle. I mean, what else do we say? There's nothing we could do. There's all this public pressure because they've seen something real take place and they don't know how to explain it. So they send Peter and John and this, this, heal, this man who was lame and is now healed away. Let us confer and let us talk. And this high council of, of leaders say that we don't know what we can do. There's all this pressure. If we, if we try to crucify him, I mean, like, who, who knows what the public's going to do because they just performed a miracle in God's name. What do we do about this? So they decide here's the best thing we can do. Leave us alone. Go away and shut up. Literally, go away and don't talk about Jesus anymore. Just just keep that message to yourself. So Peter and John leave. And what do you think they do? Do you think they go and they rent a few donkeys and it's like, we're going to get out of town, right? We're going to go and we're going to hide out in the wilderness somewhere because we have, like, we just escaped with our lives. We barely got out. No. Filled with boldness, filled with fearlessness. What do they do? They go back to the same group of Christians they've been with who are in the very city where all of this took place. And what do they do? They begin to pray. And what's really amazing is this, this is the first time in Scripture that we have like an actual account of, a, of the very first prayer meeting after Jesus. They begin to pray. And I, I kind of wonder, if we were in their shoes, what would we pray? What would you pray? You're in the same city where your master and your friend was just wrongly arrested, was beaten and crucified. I mean, you watch this horrible thing take place. And now the very same group of people who did this are after you. What do you pray for? What do I pray for? As Americans, what do we pray for? I'll give you a little hint. It doesn't look like this. Here's here's how they pray. When they heard this, when the group of people who were waiting for Peter and John and wondering... Peter and John show up, where have you been? What happened? Did did they mistreat you? Did did they hurt you? Are they going to kill us? Are they coming behind you? What what happened? Peter and John filled them in on the story. When they heard the story, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. And they begin praying this. Sovereign Lord. That's like our version of dear Heavenly Father. Except sounds much more powerful. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Does that sound like our prayer? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Dear God, I mean, it just, no, no, sovereign Lord, 
the God who's in control of everything, the God who created everything, everything we can see, the heavens, the earth, all the things in the sea that we don't even know about yet. God, you created it all. It's like their prayer is just so much bigger than our prayer, isn't it? God, you're this big old God who's, who's in charge of everything. And we want you to know we recognize that, that even in this very moment, in the very city where two months ago they arrested and crucified your son, where it looks like the emperor is in charge. God, we want to take this moment and say, we recognize that he's not and that you are sovereign Lord. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And their prayer continues. You spoke the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. And now they begin to quote a psalm from David, King David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? Why? This is, this is a messianic psalm. You see, what, what they believed in, in this, this Jewish culture that, that David and, and writers of old and prophets of old were, were kind of writing about, not their time, not men in their time, but, but this coming time, this, this future time where God would send an anointed one, where God would send a Messiah. This psalm was written a thousand years before this. Why do the nations rage and the prophets plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. This is their way of saying that. I I know that David wrote about about this messianic figure and the prophets wrote about it. and, And a lot of our scripture, the Old Testament, their Jewish scripture, wrote about and kind of looked forward to this anointed one that would come. God, we believe that anointed one happened right now in our midst, in our existence, in in our time. And that anointed one was Jesus. God, they're writing about a future day, but this future day happened right now. God, we trust you. Indeed, they go on. Herod, and now they break free from from the, the psalm. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people. They met together with the the high council and the people of Israel in this very city where this all happened to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, the anointed one, the Messiah, our master and our savior. They did, get this, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Or in other words, they're saying, God, None of this caught you by surprise. You knew what was going to happen. You knew what Jesus was walking into. Jesus knew what he was about to face. None of this took you by surprise. You're not worried about this. Therefore, why should we be worried about this? And here's a quick side note. What we just experienced in 2020, God's not worried. God knew what was going to happen. He saw what was going to happen. He's not worried about it. Why should we be? We can trust a God who sits outside of these events and outside of our time and outside of this existence. God, you saw these things. You knew they would happen beforehand, yet it didn't throw you off. It didn't trip you up. You knew it was going to happen. And then they begin to say, but God, we do have one request. Now, now, the next verse starts. Now, and and here's their one request. What do they begin to pray for? Now, God, would you protect us? Would you watch over us? Would you keep us? Would you cause our portfolios to grow and our waistlines to shrink? Would you help us do well on that chemistry test? Would you help us get into the school we want to get into? Would you help us get get, get the promotion we want so we can buy the car or the house we want? God, would would you do what we want you to do for us? 
I mean, it's funny, but the truth is, it's kind of embarrassing. Little prayers. Maybe the reason so little happens in our lives is because our prayers are so little. Like, like they're just bound to our small existence and our small needs. One of these men and women who watch their Savior die, beaten, crucified on a cross, what do they pray for? It's not like our prayer. Now, Lord, consider their hearts, the people who accused and crucified your son, and enable your servants to speak with great boldness or fearlessness or confidence. And we hear this prayer and we think, no, no, you don't need any more of that. That's what got you in jail. That's what got you arrested and in prison. You don't need any more boldness. Maybe as a matter of fact, maybe it's time to like dial it back a little bit. You're too bold. You're too confident. You're too fearless. Just, just dial it back a little bit because we don't need more of that. See, but there was once upon a time a version of Christianity that caused people to pray heroic prayers and, and pray for heroic things. There was once a version of Christianity that caused people to, to pray outside of, of their small boundaries of their family and their friends and their needs. There was once a version of Christianity that saw that God was doing something unique in the world for the entire world, and they prayed accordingly. They were big and bold and audacious prayers. Lord, consider their hearts. We care about them, God. And then give us the words to speak so we can speak with great boldness so that we can talk in such a way that would inspire them to join what we're doing and not resist what we're doing. And then God, would you stretch out your hand and not on our behalf, not for us. Don't stretch it out for us, but stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God, do something that only you can do so that people would know it's you and they would begin to believe and trust in you. And then Luke, who was a firsthand witness to all of this, he then says, the very place they prayed, something unique happened. It was like, like when they got done praying, it just began to shake. The house began to shake and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting him was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. And when the, I want to just touch on this for a minute. So if you're kind of phasing out for a minute or, or you're disengaged, I need you to dial back in. If you're at home and you've got a few windows open, you're kind of listening and browsing, I need you to close those other browsers down and just focus on this for a minute because I think this is really important. When, when Luke tells us, when the scriptures tell us that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke boldly the word of God or they spoke about Jesus boldly, it didn't look like this. That's not boldness. That's hate. That's not talking about Jesus. That's a bunch of people who take a few scriptures and they distort the scriptures and, and, and they jump off on rabbit trails to try to persecute people. That does more harm than good. That is not God. And that is not the people speaking through, or rather the Spirit speaking through people in a bold way about Jesus. You see, this causes damage and this causes hurt. This causes people to lean away from what God is doing. But when they spoke, they lived and they spoke in such a way that caused a culture that, that, that wanted nothing to do with them to lean in and begin to wonder, what is so different about them. They spoke in, in such a way and lived in such a way that caused something to change in culture because they had seen death beaten. They watched their friend arrested and crucified 
put to death, buried, and resurrected. And when you eat with somebody who was dead and is now alive, you tend to lose your fear of death. You tend to lose that, that fear that gripped your heart. You begin to live fearlessly. And when you can live fearlessly, you begin to live selflessly. And when you begin to live selflessly, you begin to live with, with compassion and generosity. And, and, and this first-century group of Christians living with, with this fearless nature, full of compassion and boldness and generosity, it caused this pagan, selfish culture to lean in instead of leaning away. And their boldness tied back to a single event. Their boldness, it, it came from something so, so simple, yet, yet so awe-inspiring. Luke concludes their prayer. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the, to the what of the Lord Jesus? To the parables? No. To the teachings of Jesus? No. Was it to the, to, to the signs and the wonders of Jesus? No. What was it? The one event that they went back to, the one event where they drew their power from, the one event that, that gave them their boldness, was that they began to testify even more about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. The singular event at the epicenter of our faith of Christianity. That's what made them unique. It didn't have anything to do with their theology. It didn't have anything to do with, with some of the stories they heard. It didn't have anything to do with, with heaven or hell or sin. It tied back to this singular event. The resurrection of Jesus. That's what caused them to stand apart. You see, they believed Jesus rose from the dead. And they were fearless. And that fearlessness translated into selflessness. They no longer feared loss. They no longer feared the loss of house or possessions. They no longer feared the loss of life. Death was, was a thing that Jesus had overcome. And if he had overcome and he asked us to follow him, then we can overcome it too. Did you know we can live a life where we fear not? Did you know that we can live a life where we no longer have to fear? What's our story going to be? I mean, when we look back at, at Americans, American Christians in the 21st century, what's our story going to look like? We can live a life fearlessly because our faith isn't built on a candidate. Our faith isn't built on a policy. Our faith isn't built on uh, whether terrorism is eradicated or, or coronavirus is completely uh, eliminated. Our faith isn't built on whether or not minimum wage gets raised or it doesn't get raised. Our faith is built on the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. And we don't believe this just because the Bible tells us so. We've talked about this. We don't believe this just because somebody passed down a story. We believe this because Matthew was an eyewitness. And Matthew saw it, and Matthew wrote it down and said, I want you to know the things that I saw with my own eyes. We believe it because Mark, who, who maybe have seen these events, but recorded these events from talking to Peter, and Peter, who was an eyewitness, said, I don't know how to explain it. As a matter of fact, I was a coward and I ran away, but somehow it happened. We believe it because Peter believed it and Mark believed it. We believe it because Luke, 
interviewed every eyewitness he could get his hands on, every person who was around to get their story, and all of them believed it. We believe it because John the Beloved believed it. We believe it because James, and you hear me say this all the time, James the brother of Jesus. I mean, what would it take for you to believe that your brother is Lord? James showed up to the scene late. He didn't believe Jesus was Lord. As a matter of fact, when Jesus was alive, he had nothing to do with his earthly ministry. He shows up to the scene late and he becomes the leader of the Jewish church in the book of Acts. And he calls his own brother Lord. Somewhere along the line, he believed my brother lived, I watched him die, and then somehow he came back to life. I don't know how, but he must be Lord. We believe it because they believe it. We believe it because the Apostle Paul, who showed up on the scene wanting to eradicate anything to do with Jesus and the way and this new thing, and then he met Jesus and he spent the rest of his life giving his life away to the church. It's so much bigger than just a story. We believe it because people saw it with their own eyes and gave their lives and gave of of their own sweat and their own blood to make sure that we would know that God raised Jesus from the dead. And because of that, we don't have to fear. So it takes me back to the original question. Years from now, when they're telling our story, what story will they tell? Years from now, when they look back and they say, once upon a time in the 21st century, there was a group of Christians. What will our once upon a time story be? What will it look like? What will it say? You know, during that time, there was turmoil and there was fear and great fear. There was a pandemic and there was civil unrest and there was all this weight on on whether or not, you know, certain people came into office and, and there was the racial divide. It just got so much deeper and deeper and there was unrest in the streets and there was riots and there was fighting and there was, there, there was this bigotry and it was awful and things got terrible. Nobody trusted anyone, and, and this little group of Christianity, no one, no one trusted them because this culture stood in the face of everything that Christians valued. What story are they going to tell? That there in those moments, there were those among us who still lived fearlessly, who still lived like Jesus lived, who followed his teachings that you don't just have to love your neighbor, but you have to love your enemy. And you have to give of yourself. You have, to, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. And follow me might mean giving of yourself for the sake of someone else. But that's what it means to follow me. There were those who lived with confidence and boldness. They lived in such a way that inspired those around them who, who didn't believe in Jesus and maybe didn't believe in God and didn't follow all of their customs wondered. What makes them so different? What makes them so unique in our culture? What will our once upon a time story be? You know, they may physically look like me, but they didn't act like me. They didn't talk like me. And and I may not believe everything they believe, but God, I'm so happy they were here. They were generous and they were selfless and they were fearless and, and they were just Christians. They were responsible and, and they, they took their, their life seriously, but they weren't judgmental. They, they, they lived with, with conviction and with passion, but, but they, they didn't project judgment on anyone else. They lived in such a way that, that just inspired people to want to know what is so different about them than me. How can they face the very same challenges we face? Yet they have joy and they have peace. 
And as things got worse, as, as the political divide got worse and the racial divide got worse and, and people continued to attack, as things got worse and worse and worse, they got better and better and better. And some of them were Democrats and some were Republicans. And some, we never knew where they stood politically because all of that didn't matter. They were just Christians. And we were better for it. What will our once upon a time story be? You know this, we don't go to church. We are the church. We are the stewards of our faith for the next generation. We set the pace for the next generation. What will our once upon a time story be? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, by men and women who, who gave of their own blood to make sure that these texts were saved and were rewritten and translated into every language that, that is known on planet Earth so that we would all understand the story, the good news of Jesus. Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders, all of the fear, all of the selfishness, everything that holds us back and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance. Let us run with perseverance. The race before us, the, 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 the task assigned to this generation to live in such a way to inspire people, to continue to follow Jesus, to live in such a way that sets the pace for the generation after us. Let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes, not, not, on, not on governments and politics, not on the economy or, or the vaccine, but fixing our eyes on what? On Jesus the pioneer, because he started it all, and the perfecter, because he ended it all of our faith. And for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew what awaited him. He knew the pain, and he knew the suffering that he would encounter. And he didn't run for the hills. He didn't try to escape across the river or hide in the wilderness. He walked right down Main Street on a donkey and said, here I am. I don't know how we call that joy. But for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Fix your eyes on him who endured such opposition from sinners so that, and here's the point of all this, here's the purpose, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you sitting at home will not grow weary and lose heart. It's the author trying to tell us, guys, it is worth it. And it is working. Our Savior had a plan. And he endured all of that suffering to see that plan come into existence. And he said the same thing that he said to his followers in the first century, he says to you and me. Now follow me. Follow me. I am the savior of the world and I have a plan to redeem the world. Follow me and fear not. Fear not. Fear not. When you follow Jesus, really, what is there to fear? 
Some of you have grown weary. Some of you are beginning to lose heart. I pray this morning you would remember the reason for your faith, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And because of that, we no longer have to fear. Heavenly Father, I thank you, God, for for what has been an incredibly difficult series to work through. God, not just to speak, but but, but to, to, God, come to grips with in my own heart. God, it is such a high call of perseverance and and of, of, God, this courage and this confidence to continue to carry on. God, for those of us, God, who in the midst of of what has happened in our world and and in our nation, God, and maybe in our own personal lives, we are on, on the cusp of growing weary and losing heart. God, I pray that you would encourage us once again with this message. God, to take a step back in your direction, to believe once again, to to take our eyes off our problems and off the government and off off the coronavirus and the vaccine and whatever else may may have caused or gripped our attention and to focus our eyes back on you, the author and the finisher of our faith. God, would you help us once again to realize that you have a plan and none of this has thrown you off and we can trust you, O sovereign Lord, above everything else. I pray for those of us, Lord, God, who maybe have even taken a step out of our faith. God, who, who have grown so weary, God, that we are, we are giving up even now. That you would give them the courage to step back in. To fix our eyes, their eyes on you once more. Would you give them the wisdom to see what has diverted their attention and the courage to put it back on you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.